If you're going to put your values out there, then for goodness sake, make sure that you are living those values at every stage. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Hi, this is Matt Rouse with Digital Marketing Masters. And today my guest is Brenton from Halftime Orange. And do you want to intro your podcast also, since we're going to do like a dual podcast episode today? Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting, isn't it? I mean, we, 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 we've just, we just got carried away in the green room. That's right. We've spent like half an hour talking already. So we got to record. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, so yeah, I'm the founder of Halftime Orange, a customer experience consultancy based in Auckland in New Zealand. We're about two and a half years old. And in this, our third year, we, yeah, we launched a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago, actually. I'm not sure when this will go out, but yeah, we, we launched it in the middle of August, second half of August. Right. And it's called the Halftime Orange Podcast. And the focus is customers or customer experience. And as a, as a recent guest, Neil Butler pointed out, I've got the ability to kind of talk to 7 billion people because we're all customers of somebody and we've all got customers of some description, whether, you know, even if we're internal, internal companies, it's with, we're internal customers or we have internal customers. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's already a really fascinating ride. The first episode we talked about flying cars. And, you know, I didn't know where it was going to go. And within a few weeks, here I am on your show, Matt. So, you know, things are looking up. <laughs> and we got through Phil Paluccia was the connector here. Shout out for Phil from Billionaires and Boxers. Definitely. Right. Because I was on his show previously. I think you were on also, right? That's right. Where you just know Phil. Yeah. Well, and I, I worked with <laughs> Phil, actually, to, you know, to be, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't tell Phil, I didn't say he should talk about you in the green room, but Phil actually helps me produce my podcast. Oh, okay, good. So he's takes away a lot of the the pain points. Yeah. One of our most popular episodes was, uh, it's called World 2.0 with Phil Palucha, and we did it like right worst of the pandemic time. And we were talking about, you know, how the world's never going to be the same and then all the kind of structure and everything behind that and you know, how companies can look forward. And just for your own listeners, my background, I run Hook SEO Digital Marketing with my partner, Scott Burson. It's a merger of two previous companies. He had a e-commerce company and a payment processor. And then I had a web design and advertising firm and we put them together. And I also host the Digital Marketing Masters podcast. And I run a course to teach entrepreneurs how to do email marketing. That's called Inbox Mastery. Mm. So that's kind of my background. And I've been doing email marketing for companies and for agencies since the 90s. So I got a crap load of email experience. Quite some changes to the technology landscape as well. I know I've sent... I've probably sent tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of emails, <laughs> not as a spammer, as an opt in only. Just I don't want anybody to be like, hey, you had that spammer guy in your pocket. No, oh, it's your fault. <laughs> That's right. It's not my fault. Your inbox is full of garbage. That's what I'm trying to fix. So anyways, we're trying to talk about customer experience because you, you have a customer experience company. Yes, yes. You are very customer experience focused, actually. And I wrote a book called Start Saying Yes. Yes. About how to improve customer experience and sales through positive messaging. 
such an important part. It is. Customer experience is everything. And I want to ask you a question. What do you think of the current state of customer experience in the world? Oh, that's a really good question. Of the industry or of the experiences that we as customers? The experiences that people have as customers, just generally. Well, on a positive note, customer experience is improving. And that is a double-edged sword because by improving customer experience, what you're doing is you are creating new expectations. So every time you deliver, say for, for your company, your SEO marketing company, the quality of service that your clients have come to expect from you is something that everybody in your industry has to at least live up to to be able to deliver the same dopamine hit that they get from, from receiving a great customer experience. Because everybody started to focus on it, and it, it, it's funny, if we look way back, we can see the evolution of customer experience. There's this thing called the CX6, which is a way of quickly measuring your company's customer experience or your the customer journey, the quality of the customer journey. And you give it a mark out of 10 across six key aspects of customer experience. So first of all, it's got to be fast. It's got to be easy and it's got to be convenient. Then you've got to have something that's personable. You've got something that's trackable and something that's predictable. And if you can look at your customer journey and market across those six categories, then you get a good impression of where you sit. And you, you can. This is a little exercise that everybody can do. They then do it to their, their competitors' journey and see how they score against those, those six categories. It's a really good way of, of comparing. But if we look at how the CX6 has grown over time, you know, we didn't, we weren't expecting it to be trackable or predictable or personal in the 1970s. I remember, you know, my, my dad bought a TV and brought it home 1979. And to be honest, the customer experience there was that it worked and that it didn't have to be returned. And that was all it was, you know, after that, because we used to open boxes and there used to be breakages in there or something didn't go right. And that would be the biggest kind of pain point. TVs weighed like 100 pounds, so if you had to take it back, it was a huge problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah massive, massive. So, you know, companies started to deliver better quality products, and they lifted it up. Then you had the likes of Dell kind of come in in the, in the late 80s, and they started to introduce us to personalization because we had computers that we could choose what monitors and what keyboards and, you know, how big the, the hard drive was. And, you know, I remember getting my... Shows how old I am. My 486. <laughs> well, I remember getting my Spectrum ZX, which didn't have any memory whatsoever. It just had 48K of grunt underneath the, the hood. And you had to basically program everything in or, you know, load stuff in via a tape recorder. But if you didn't quite get the, the volume right on the tape recorder, you get 99% through the load and it would, it would fall out. <laughs> well, you know what? During when the 486 was moving over, like, there was like the 25 and then there was like the 33 and the 33 SX. And then it went to the Pentium. The Pentium was the big deal, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was selling electronics, like commission sales, selling electronics when those came out. Right. So that was like the big thing. I remember it. I was like the guy who has the new computer every month because something new kept coming out, but I worked at the store. So we got a huge discount and I would just buy another processor and stick it in my computer. You talked about, 
measuring your competitor's experience versus your company's experience. And that's something that I would say almost no one does for starters. And kind of combining that with when I used to work at the electronics store, one thing that we used to do was competitor shop. Yes. And on our competitor shopping list, we would track things like, did they greet us when we came in the door? Was the shop clean? You know, were the shelves stocked? Were the shelves dusty and dirty? Did they have all their product faced properly? All these things that are basically just a list of customer experience. And we would track what does the salespeople say? What are the prices on their products? And, you know, all this stuff. And the same idea you can do with customer experience, just go try and buy something from your competitor. And if you're in like a small market, you know, like maybe it's a local business versus a local business, just call your buddy or something and have them go try and buy something from them. That's a fantastic way. Have them record the conversation or screen record, right? They're trying to buy something online. Always shop your competitor. Definitely. Well, I mean, we've, we've got some hard and fast. It's funny. You talk about, you know, being clean and, and all of that now. Really, that is, those are an expectation. Like if when we used to go to hotels, say, I remember traveling around Europe with my family. And to be honest, we just wanted it to be relatively clean. We had a certain expectation what a four-star place would look like, you know, a and b in the, the heart of the Black Forest or something like that. You know, you'd have a pension with, a, with an old bed. And, and cleanliness was the area that was really the focus. Now cleanliness is, is an expectation that we don't even focus on. It's like no one, no one goes around their room kind of checking to see what the dust is like we did in the, the, the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s. So there's another expectation. So, so those basic levels, those basic things in shops, they're so important because if you're not meeting those base level expectations and you talk about, say, you know, we did some mystery shopping recently after lockdown one here because we believe that the customer needs have changed significantly in 2020. And I challenge any company that thinks that their value proposition to their clients this year is the same as what it was last year. Well, I don't think you understand your clients. So we, we believe that the base expectation now is to not get COVID. It's like to feel safe, to not be part of the, a, a new cluster to, to spread. We want social distancing. A lot of people want social distance. There will be some who think that social distancing and looking one another is somehow impinging on our human rights. And I don't think this is a show to kind of discuss that that opinion. Probably more here than there. Yeah. Well, we funny <laughs> you say that because we have a a significant Quenon community growing here who believe that it's a pandemic because so few people in New Zealand have been directly affected by like somebody who's had COVID because we haven't had much here. So we're in this quite entitled situation. You know what? I have no problem talking about my idea of conspiracy theories. And I'll tell you why I think most conspiracy theories don't work. It's because no one can fucking keep a secret. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's it. True. That's the whole story, that right? Like all you got to do is tell two people something that you don't want somebody to know and find to see how long that lasts, right? Like there's no way you could have a global conspiracy because not that many people can keep a secret, number one. And number two, most people can't coordinate, you know, to save their life, right? So... I think we give people, I think we give them too much credit as well for screwing it up. It's way too much credit. Intentionally. I think they screw it up by not knowing what they're doing as opposed to any kind of form of conspiracy. Like you can't be like, I can't trust the government to do anything because they screw everything up. And five minutes later, be like, all these government people are <laughs> part of a 
global conspiracy to put digital microchips in vaccines to give people who, you know, whatever, right? It's just insane that you could think that there's that level of coordination can actually happen, not only happen, happen in secret. I'll tell you what, though, you raise a good point, and it makes me think, well, there seems, there certainly seems to be a conspiracy at the moment in the tech world to harvest as much data from as many people as possible because that seems to be the world's most valuable resource at the moment. That's a real life that's a real life one that's it is real. real. It is real. It is real. And it's not a conspiracy in any way. It's just there's some companies that got the jump on it and are better at it than others. Mm, of course. Of course. Or they are willing to do things that other people aren't willing to do. But you can understand if you're a fear based person and you hear about the like I've worked in the tech industry. I was in the dot-com industry from, I was in the internet media side of things for quite a few years at the beginning of the millennium, an interesting time. And I think that if people were living in that environment, they would know that there was no conspiracy going on, that it was literally just, we're all just, we're, everybody's making it up as they're going along, trying to make the most out of the situation. And then coincidence happen and people hear about things that are working and then they jump on that bang. There's no conspiracy. However, if you're not in the industry and you hear about privacy and, you are, and you're exposed to maybe only a small part of the negative side of the privacy debate, well, then you could quite easily as a fear-based person start opening yourself up to a conspiracy. Do you know what I mean? It looks like it from the outside, but we know that it's not from the inside. This honestly drives me insane okay so they're like this is a conspiracy but they're just trying to get all our data and the people are on their phone telling each other that like the phone is the data collector they don't need to get a vaccine to put a chip in you to figure out where you are <laughs> because you carry your phone with you everywhere you go and if you're not your car has a chip and you know they can track your license plate through cct cameras and there's facial recognition on cameras in stores and closed circuit tv in some places and all the police departments have your face on their body cams and they can track you through your driving your car around through traffic cams through like the department of transportation or whatever your you know local version is and there's no need to put a microchip in you everybody knows where you fucking are already right like it's just insane yeah that's right the data is there if they want to misuse it as we saw with cambridge analytica right you could go to google maps and you could look at your history and you could see everywhere that you've been and you can't say to yourself here's a list of everywhere that i've been it knows that on Google, but Google needs to stick a microchip in me to figure out where I am. Like, no, they don't. It's plain as day. It's on your screen. We had some people that didn't want, you know, that, that was the reason why they didn't want to download the COVID tracker in New Zealand. And it's like... Right, well, people don't want to download it here either, so... Yeah, but, but, but those people must realise that their phone is literally sending data all the time to lots of different people. So the information's out there. It's just this is a far more... But this is a more efficient way of getting that data so it can be used in by health professionals, by the health, you know, the health leaders to to help keep us safe. Right. Here's a conspiracy that's a real one. If you have either an Android or an iPhone, every time, even if you have Wi-Fi turned off on your phone and you have location turned off on your phone, when it finds a wireless device that is trying to connect to it that it doesn't know it turns the wi-fi antenna back on 
gets the MAC address and the location of the device and then turns your Wi-Fi back off. Straight up. Because it's trying to track all those pieces of equipment and see where they go. And it's in the terms of service and you can read it and you can test it. Rather than I haven't heard the conspiracy, I haven't heard that that fact before. So that's, right. that's really interesting. <laughs> what, what are we signing ourselves away? I would say this week I would have probably just ticked without reading four or five digital agreements. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no way you could read them all, right? Is anybody is it like an independent body overseeing the use of those things? I mean, what could we hide? We could hide all sorts of things in those um, terms and agreements. I was, I was on a podcast where a guy, he had spent the time to read every software license agreement for just a week. So any piece of software he used in a week, he had to read the license agreement. And just in that week, he had to give up because he had spent 60 days reading for a couple hours a day trying to read all the license agreements for pieces of software that he uses in a week. Wow. Right. People don't understand when you turn your phone on, they're like, my phone is so efficient because it just has this tiny little battery and I plug it in and I get, but it uses the equivalent of running a refrigerator every time you turn your phone on because there's a hundred different applications that connect to like a thousand or more APIs that are all in data centers distributed all across the planet. Every single time you use your phone, all of that stuff it goes into action, right? Like your data is not being sent just to Google or to, to Apple, right? I mean, it's being sent to all the software providers of every piece of software you use, every API that those software places are using in their software. It's a huge energy footprint. And then who else knows what connects to those, right? Yeah, it's like a massive technological footprint that is almost indecipherable, thankfully, right? Because that's the privacy end of it. But I mean, you can't carry around a phone or walk around in, in, in stores and stuff anymore without, I mean, somebody knows you're there. What's your opinion on crypto? Things like, you know, Ethereum and their, and their decentralized apps, etc. I love I love crypto. I think it's a great idea. I really like blockchain itself. I think there's going to be some huge stuff built on the blockchain. It just kind of hasn't made its way yet. There's going to be the I think the proliferation of 5G and low level satellite Internet is going to be what kicks off blockchain as a software kind of low level platform, because having the ability to send those large amounts of data wirelessly, regardless of your position, will mean that you don't need connected Internet to do it through like a wire right at your house, which makes it then untrackable because now you can be wireless or at least relatively untrackable. But something like blockchain, you could have a whole Internet based on the blockchain that is that is distributed Internet that no company owns, which is what the Internet was supposed to be in the beginning. We're starting to build that in New Zealand. There's a company called Centrality, who they're the fastest growing company in New Zealand in, in history, I believe. Or they were when I met them a year ago. There's lots of companies building that right now. And there are people who, and there's people who, and no one's heard of it in New Zealand. No one's, very few people have heard of this company. And what they've built is the operating system for the Ethereum blockchain. And they're currently pumping money. If you're, and anyone who's listening, if you're a, if you've got a, a decentralized app idea, a way to, you know, a, a solution that it's really important to keep that data private, then they are, they've got so, every year, I think they do two or three incubators. The significant money going into the New Zealand economy, trying to help these young, you know, DAP developers kind of create really cool things. Like I love the idea of, 
but advertising a third, all that all that money that we're losing for data you know my my resource my data is actually worth there's a I think there's a black mirror show that kind of show you know does that it's like how much time people are spending online and they can kind of open themselves up I could say I'm actually in the market for a pair of shoes at the moment I need a new pair of running shoes and put myself out to the decentralized ad exchange and the media that I'm using gets their third of the revenue. The ad exchange gets their third of the revenue, but I get my third of the revenue for my data. And so I think that's a really exciting challenge to the privacy issue. They could deliver you that money in Ethereum coins. You could get a microtransaction based on a blockchain. There's a voice of customer program called Yabble that's doing really well in its growth in New Zealand. And they are decentralizing voice of customer to allow the consumer who is giving their valuable opinions about brand is actually able to keep that data. If that data was used in f- for future marketing, they would you know, be, be appreciated. Right. They get a, a microtransaction. It's a great idea. I think that when we talk about decentralized apps, for those that may not know too much about programming or or blockchain, a decentralized app is basically the pieces of the application are held on on tons of different computers. Everybody's computer has pieces of those apps. And then when you need the app, it puts all the pieces together. But because it's distributed between all these computers, there's no server that is like the single server point for that application. So an example would be if, you know, if you go to your Gmail, that goes to Google's data center that holds their application. Whereas you could have a decentralized email program that, you know, the pieces would be on the blockchain and you would download them as you need them. How that would work for email. I don't know. I'm not a genius on that side of things, but I know the basics of it. You know more than me. And I mean, I have an IT background, so I understand a bit more of it than the average person. But so I think the speed of being able to transfer and decrypt uh, blocks is going to be really important. Right. So I think that's why 5G and stuff is really going to help. But another thing that I think is super important is, I mean, how important is privacy to the average person? I would say if you ask them, they would say it's like a nine out of 10 kind of thing. But if you look at what they do, it's about a one out of 10. No one, no one really expects privacy from being in a digital environment. People want convenience more than they want privacy. I do wonder once they have privacy, like I, I see this more from, I don't, I don't think people want privacy, but I do think people want to be in control of their data. I think that's a growing thing that's happening. And that's going to be the more people that, stop farming your data from you, the more of an expectation you will have. If half the brands are rewarding you for your data and the other half are not, well, loyalty is going to be affected by that because new expectations will be set by the general consumer world. And people, I'm sure there's tons of people who think this is a conspiracy, but because of small businesses being affected so much compared to large scale businesses that have the resources and the staff and stuff to adapt. A lot of small businesses are closing and stores are closing. And where are you going to spend cash? Even if you have cash, I mean, you can't stick cash into your computer and buy something on Amazon, right? So there's going to need to be a different way to pay for things 
that is similar to cash, which is blockchain, right? Blockchain-based currencies like your Bitcoin, Ethereum, yada, yada. And I think it's just going to be another payment method. You know, people will be like, well, I could use cash or I could use a debit card or I could use my credit card or I could use my blockchain card. You know, like it's just going to be another thing. Well, you, you would have more of that adoption where you are, I'm sure. Like I know one person in Auckland who was very vocal, quite rightly, and I, I'm kind of almost watching him from guidance at the moment because he seems to be navigating the, the crypto world well. And he started sharing his adventure on a small New Zealand Facebook group. But he had his crypto wallet card turn up, his green one. So he can now use crypto to pay for pretty much anything with PayWave. I certainly, if I, was, okay. if I was in, I'm sure, I'm sure the people in banking at the top, they're seeing this coming up pretty quick as well because the requirement that they've fulfilled for so long being that arbiter of fairness before the invention of blockchain and the reality of not needing three-level, three-line accounting, you know, we don't need that intermediary anymore. If you and I are exchanging by blockchain, I can't change the contract without changing your contract and without changing every single contract on the blockchain. So all of a sudden, the, the requirements for lawyers becomes less. The requirements for banking becomes less. And what they'll end up competing on with that world is better and better customer experience. And not, not customer experience as in how I think there's the old way of looking at customer experience. And it's the way that I used to look at it when I first got into customer experience. It was all the, and I say, I talk about this a lot. I'm, I'm sorry for repeating myself on so many podcasts, but I think it's really important to see the change in the, dif, in the definition. It used to be every thought, feeling and experience that you have with a brand from, this, from when you begin dealing with them to when you end your dealings with them. Now, that couldn't be a less customer-centric way of looking at a customer journey if you tried. It is all about the company. It's, it's making this assumption that every single touch point that you have with them is more important than any of the stuff that you don't know about. So what, what the new definition is, it's the thoughts, feelings, and experiences that you have from when you start thinking about fulfilling a need to when you end up fulfilling the need. So it includes every company that's involved in that ecosystem. It involves every part of the process. It involves the advocacy from outside. It, it, it involves the six areas of, of, of life where our expectations are built from. And from by looking at it that way, and we're going back, this, this circles neatly back to what you're talking about, competitor analysis. If you're looking at looking at the entire ecosystem analysis and everyone who's playing in there, then what we've found with clients is that you'll get these massive pain points that just stick out like the proverbial that you think well that's that's where we play we're talking with we're talking with a, a big battery manufacturer taking on another really big battery manufacturer and we're looking at their customer journey and in some cases it's taking three years to hear from this global battery company when we sp I spoke to somebody yesterday who's built a couple of investment properties over the last three years, and he reached out to find out about this very sexy battery, this very sexy electronic product. He heard back last week, three years later, after he's already built the properties and he's already kind of, you know, found the energy solutions. And also if he decided to, to go into it now, he would have at least another year's wait before they could fulfill any of the, the requirements that he's got. 
So there's these That's people crazy. now. Now, what will they have to do? How much will they have to spend to attract him? How much will they have to spend to also get over the new expectations of it being a pretty crappy customer experience to everybody he's spoken to? And they, you know, like those, those, those the customer experiences across the entire journey and in the, the part of it. We also found out that no one really knows what to do. I think this is the biggest issue with my customer experience with blockchain. I feel like this is my first technological high jump that I have to make. You know, when the internet came along, I was a sprightly, you know, late teens, early 20s. You know, just it was just technology. I just took it on. I, I, I adapted really quickly. Now I'm 46. I'm like, well, oh, what's all this blockchain about? This is really confusing. I feel like my dad when he first discovered Skype. You know, it's like for me, it was really. So I, I wonder how these tech companies, and I, th- I challenge all tech companies, actually. How do you make your challenge to, how do you make your you're reaching a point of understanding about what you can offer. How can you get there quicker? Because I think with a lot of tech companies, it's the assess phase. We're all in that assess phase wondering, is this going to help me with my future needs? Is this going to help me solve some future problems? But we need some information. We need some education before we're willing to admit and reach out and waste time talking to salespeople that we know are probably not going to have our best interests at heart. They're probably just, you know, they want to sell their quota. So, yeah, those crypto companies could improve their growth so much better if they were focusing a little bit more on the education play at the moment. I think that, you know, a company like Coinbase does a pretty good job at that. They're like, let's make it just as easy as logging into your bank account, right, or PayPal or something, which they do a good job. But, you know, you were talking about how long it takes for companies to get back to people. Now, three years is obviously an extreme example, right? But there was a study done. This was uh, several years ago now. And they asked companies if somebody reaches out to them through social media. So they, they message them on Twitter, they message them on Facebook, something like that, right? How long, what's the expectation their company has to get back to someone? And they said that the average was 24 to 48 hours. They also surveyed customers and said, when you send a company a message on one of these platforms, how long do you think it should take for companies to get back to you? And the average was 12 minutes. So the customer expectation is 12 minutes and the company expectation is 48 hours. So obviously there's a huge gap there. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be Johnny on the spot all the time, but a good customer service hack for that is to say, We're going to get back to you as soon as we can. We generally answer questions in X amount of time. However, if you need immediate assistance, you can call us here or email support at such and such, and you can have an autoresponder or something that sends a message to somebody so they know that, right? So they're not like waiting for 10 minutes for you to get back to them getting pissed off when you're not going to get back to them for two days, right? So I think there's, there's some easy customer service hacks like that. And customer service right now, it's fucking terrible okay it's terrible and i'll tell you why it's terrible okay and you can back me up if you're seeing the same thing that i'm seeing when i need help because of coronavirus every company found out really quickly that they could just instead of actually helping people and answering their questions and stuff and, and doing support and all those things that they're supposed to do they could say due to coronavirus we're having a really large response we will be slow to respond to your inquiries yada 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 and i mean i had a company whose listing got dropped off the map 
because a competitor did something against the terms of service on Google. And it took Google 65 days to get back to me and then three weeks to fix the problem. That is not good customer service, right? And God forbid it's something that you really needed. And companies, it's been what, since February, March, right? When coronavirus pandemic really started affecting companies, probably end of March here. It's September. So they've had April, May, June, July, August, September, six months to figure it out. And they can't solve their support problem in six months. Like, give me a break. The only reason that they're doing it is because they look at customer support as a cost. And they're saying, we can cut this cost in half by having half as many agents. We can have them work from home so we don't have to have them in the office. So we don't have to pay the office expense. We don't have to pay all the residuals that go along with that. And... You know, we'll just tell people it's going to take a month to get back to them instead of two days. I think that's a horrible way to do customer experience. I couldn't agree more. We've at the end of last year, one one of the reasons that I see out there for customer service sometimes being really questionable, certainly with those bigger companies that you're talking about, like like Google, they have a voice of customer program where they want to know what you think about them all the time. But it is certainly not as responsive and quick when you want to tell them about your issues and how you can help. So it's so one that gives to me a real impression. Who cares about who here? I don't think that that feels like I'm getting the right attention. I think Google also trade on the fact that they give so much for free to users of the internet. But are they giving it for free or are they using it to get your data? <laughs> well, they're not because there is that adage. That, uh, I've, I love this. I love this. Very simple. It's like if, if your product is free, then you're the product. <laughs> That's true. Actually, I just posted because that social, I think it's called Social Network is a documentary that just came out on Netflix here. I don't know if it's on there. Social Dilemmas. Yeah, Social Dilemma. I recommended to it yesterday, so I will watch it again. I will watch it tonight because you're the second person in two days that said I have to watch that. So I haven't watched it yet. Oh, you haven't? What I was going to say was somebody posted a quote. They posted that exact quote from the movie. And then I posted me in 2012 on Facebook saying exactly the same right. thing. You never know. I heard it a few years ago. And I'm like, somebody's been telling you guys this for years. Yeah, I, I saw it years ago. And it, was, it could well have been from your good self as well. I remember saying, I said, that, is a, that, is a very, <laughs> that is a very true quote. And I'm sure a lot of people have had that observation, right? I'm not the first one. But, you know, it's funny that this kind of stuff comes up where like people like, they just look shocked, right? Like, oh my God, I, I can't believe Facebook's stealing all my data. Like, fuck off. You just gave it all to them. Like the whole time you've been giving it all. Where do you think they were doing with it? You are posting pictures of every important part of your life onto Facebook. You know, you're... you're right. And then they, they paste that, like copy and paste. Today is the day that Facebook is going to take your photos. And by I'm posting, I hereby declare... Facebook cannot use my likeness, blah, blah, like fuck off. Like that's not, you're not like legally doing anything when you post shit on Facebook for starters and like, just go read the terms of service and you can see, you know what people don't understand about these companies is how much they don't give a shit about people. Right? Like that's the biggest thing. So well, the dopamine thieves, they, they love, that's, that's right. They want. Ding, 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 ding. I was listening to Noah Kagan. He used to work at Facebook, right? And he was like employee 25 or something at Facebook. And uh, he's got a book about, you know, how I lost 
$140 million or something. And it's because he got fired at Facebook. Right. <laughs> but anyway, the funny part of the whole thing was that they had a, a suggest like a feature suggestion thing at Facebook, right? That which they still have to this day. And I've still been told by their support people to go use this, right? Because I'll be like, how come this thing doesn't work at ad manager or something? They'll be like, Oh, go use this feature. Well, he's like, that doesn't go anywhere. It just goes straight in the garbage. It doesn't go to an email address. It just gets deleted. So when you request, the only reason they have it is to make it look like they care what you think. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think they understand the realities of the prosumer anymore because we kind of know that when we don't hear back from people, they don't give a shit. That's, it's the same human to human relationship building that brands have to do. It's still, we still, we still see an entity as is this entity, whether it's a company, whether it's a new partner, whether it's a friend, whether it's um, a business acquaintance, we are on a, on a, on an unconscious level, relatively selfish because we are trying to solve future problems and we're looking to see, are we going to be able to build a relationship with someone, something that we can trust, that we're safe with, that fulfills our needs, that maybe fulfills other needs that we weren't even knowing about, something that we can adopt into our lives that is easy, fast, convenient. That's what we're looking for all the time on an, on an unconscious level. Of course, with some relationships, we're looking for further enrichment in other areas. Like I don't need a brand to deliver me oxytocin. I don't really need the cuddles that they try and give me in a lot of cases. But sometimes that comes across as really inauthentic. It's like, well, I don't want to be cuddled by a big multinational corporation. But I just want you to be really good at what you're doing and for help helping me fulfill my needs. And so when we know that when we talk to people or we talk to entities and we tell them what we think and we don't hear back from them, well, we know that they're not listening. Well, that's certainly the impression that we're getting. So those companies that, like I think that voice of customer technology is one of the weirdest paradoxes in the tech world because so many, I would say more than 50% of voice of customer programs, the purpose is to measure engagement of their customers, actually disengages their customers. It slightly damages it. We, we walk away. There's a, there's a guy called Max Israel who runs a company called Customerville, and they are one of those companies that have flipped that on its head. They actually believe that researchers will say you shouldn't put any bias into your research. So that's why we get these dry and boring voice of customer programs it's like, that talk to us in a way that no human would talk to another way. Like if at the end of the show you say, Brenton, on a scale of 1 to 10, how likely are you to recommend my podcast? I would think, well, no, no human talks to another human in that way. And yet our brands ask that question all the time. And we think, well, what's based on what? You know, it's like I didn't come into the store to give you a good transaction. I came into the store to buy something to take on a fishing boat and catch a fish, for instance. And I'll be satisfied when I catch the first fish when my new fishing rod has worked. The actual process of buying the fishing rod is not the most important thing. And so we know that the last interaction with somebody is usually going to be about, all right, so you've dealt with me. Now, what do you think about me? And you know what? I hate those service things that pop up, right? Every website you go to that's some large company, it's like, 
tell us how we did today. And I'm like, just trying to find the X button, right? Like click, you get out of the way. I'm trying to do something right. Then they pop something up and then, you know, like just get it on here at the end of every squad. Yes. There's a five star rating. And that's, that's cool. And it is, it is, you know, it's not invasive. It isn't invasive, but it's also, it's yeah. My experience hasn't finished yet, but that was just a small part of it. That was your part of it. What I'm actually focused on now is how do I edit it? How do I, you know, all of those things. Like, I just think that there are more meaningful, I think those uninvasive ways can often be meaningless to the customer. And I think a lot of those things, especially when you get to brands where you have more direct contact with your customers, which I mean, people at all, especially large companies in the marketing department, they say the word engagement every five seconds. <laughs> they have engagement, 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 engagement. And you go, when is the last time that you talk to one of your customers? And it's like never in some cases, right? Like the people are so far removed from their customer base, especially the decision makers, right? Totally. Like we think that we think the biggest inhibitor. I have talked to my customers, customers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've literally had a conversation where I looked someone up. I said, okay, this is one of the top 10 spenders on this client of mine's account. I am going to shoot them an email, ask them if I can have a conversation with them, get them on the phone and we talk. And I say, hey, I just wanted to see how everything's going. Oh, did you get your stuff? Was it good? Yeah. How, how did it look like out of the package and stuff? Is there anything we can improve? You know, this kind of stuff, right? Just have a quick conversation with them. And that's not even my customer, right? That's my customer's customer. Because the customer experience is what the person uses the thing for in the end. And that's what you want to find out. Not only did it, you know, do the job that they wanted it to do, but how was the start to finish experience? And you cannot do marketing or brand work or any of that kind of stuff for a company unless you know how that experience is going to go and how it's going to end up. Absolutely. And the customer experience thing, oh my God, there are so many examples of bad customer service. I mean, it's just endless, right? But so much has gone online now. Like most websites, this is the experience you get, right? You go to the website you start looking at it because you're trying to find whatever the one thing you need to click on is. And then something pops up and it's like, just sign up for a newsletter. Well, I'm already on your newsletter list or whatever, right? Just go away. And you're, all you're trying to do is try to make the box go away. And then it's going to ask you to, if you accept cookies and you're okay, I accept the cookie thing. Well, I don't even care what it says. Nobody reads it. They just hit, I agree because they want the box to go away. And then you start scrolling down you find the button you need to click on to go pay your bill or whatever you're trying to do. And then it pops up. How is your experience? Would you like to take a five minute survey? No, of course I don't want to take yeah. a fucking five minute survey. Like that's absurd. Who wants to take a five minute survey, right? But it's so important to us. It's so important to me to know what you think. I don't think it's very respectful of customer time. I went through it. You know, I, I fill those forms in because I'm fascinated. Like I just like to see when people do it well, but also the the gaffes and Burger King. And I'm happy to say who it is um, because they wasted 12 minutes of my time making me fill in a 42-question survey about, about buying a burger because I got pretty shitty customer service that day. And I just thought, you know, people do, you know, this is what I do, you know, the customer service thing, customer experience. One, I'd like to have a look what their, their thing is. They'll give me a free burger out of it, which I don't really care about. But I got through it and I'm having to give them details off the receipt. It's like I'm, I'm giving you my receipt number. Then I'm telling you whether I've bought chips or not. Then, you know, what sort of drink did you have? I says, why are you, 
why are you wasting my time instead of instead of linking your databases so that you can see from that receipt all of this list of questions that I didn't need to answer. Well, if you get a free burger, though, so, you know, you're making like four dollars an hour to fill out that. It's <laughs> not even minimal wage. No, exactly. Exactly. And but it was more these questions were clearly like it was they were, they were almost getting me to do the the operational mystery shop where the tiles clean enough it's like i don't care right now i just want to tell you that i had a shitty service from you and i want to move move along i don't and i didn't you know i would have done that without a burger i would have done that if you, if you want to know if the store's clean enough, send someone to look and see if the store's clean enough. Like you don't have to ask. <laughs> the, so, uh, you know what? Talking about customer service related stuff. Mm, I'm glad you're coming back to that. I was actually, I sent out, I, I sent a weekly marketing uh, newsletter, right? I sent it out today, but I actually used a topic that's in my inbox mastery email marketing course. And that topic is how to read the room. And when I say read the room, I don't necessarily mean read the room like you're a stage speaker or you're at a cocktail party. I mean, take the temperature of the culture and your clients and what they're trying to do and all of these things. Take them into account before you send them stuff like a 42 page survey from fucking Burger King. Right. Like, obviously, this person has they are so far detached from what their clients want. And I mean, Burger King has done some amazing marketing in the past. So there's obviously disconnect somewhere in the line, right? Like they did this one where they use geofencing so that if you are within uh, a parking lot of a competitor, like a McDonald's or something, they will give you a coupon for a one cent Whopper. If you, but it's only good for like an hour. So you got to drive there instead of going to the McDonald's, you got to drive over to Burger King, get your one cent Whopper. That's brilliant. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you know the, the super long survey, not brilliant. Okay. Well, you know what? I, you know what I think the, the the problem is with that. I actually think it's quite simple. My prediction is that that voice of customer is for operations, and operations are completely siloed from the marketing team, which is ridiculous when you've got possibly the richest source of customer insight, and it's going into a siloed department that the marketing team don't get on with potentially they may have siloing this could just be a nation this this could be a regional issue it could be with the fact that our regional marketing office didn't get on with the the operations manager or vice versa or there was a difficult person or the tech or the databases were siloed and there was different different databases across the entire organization so this it's generally down to the simple fact of some sort of siloing whether that's siloing of purpose siloing of department or siloing of data the example that i was going to use is news sites right like news websites oh, yeah. and newspaper websites and stuff they're the worst right don't get me started Matt. <laughs> so you click on a story and they have for starters this is how a news story works now. They take something off like the newswire, right? Like Associated Press or something. It'll be like two sentences. So they're like, wildfire in Oregon burns for another 24 hours. And they'll say, Oregon, a wildfire has burned for another 24 hours. And they'll say like, repeat it like two different ways. And then they'll have the exact same thing again, because they know that they have to have at least four paragraphs for it to rank. So they just write two and put them in twice. And then, the whole website explodes with advertising. 
there's so much advertising popping up and videos playing and, and, and audio starts playing on the ads and shit that you cannot close it fast enough. Right. If you're lucky, if your browser doesn't, you know, crash on you at the same time, it is a worthless customer service experience and no wonder they're going bankrupt. Right. I know print news started to go away, but what do you think people want to go to your site for? My my background is actually quite heavily media orientated and I've worked in radio, I've worked in um, press, I've I've even sold uh, media in men's urinals in clubs around Auckland, you know, so I've I've covered across a whole range of media and and I I definitely think that there's a customer centricity gap, a problem within the media industry. I'm pretty sure that most... No, that's 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 a dangerous thing to say. There are a lot of organisations that do not see their audience as a customer. They're a number. They're a demographic. They don't do any qualitative analysis. I've got a really good example of the level of qualitative analysis of a media company who said in a bank's customer centricity conference that they were hosting and doing the media for, and their business editor said, yeah, yeah, we're really customer-centric. Um, we even have those little thumbs up and thumbs down on the bottom of our articles now, so we know whether people like it or don't. It's like, well, that's still, what do you think of us? It's not what do you want to hear, what do you want more of? What is important to you at the moment? What are the things that are that we should be informing you about? Because actually our job when we're thinking of you as a customer is to provide the best entertainment, the best news, the best documentaries, whatever your media is. It's your job to provide it to the best of those customers. Instead, the number one customer is the ad agency. Then maybe the direct clients as well but still that's that's the level of customer centricity anybody any media company i've worked for that's been customer centric that's where their customer centricity has been focused so instead of having the the audience as the customers for a customer centric for customer centric improvements which lead to customer centric transformations any customer centricity tends to put the ad agencies at the center of everything which is, to my mind, absolutely balmy. It's, it's, it's not long-term growth-minded because surely the ad agencies, like what, what are you trying to do? What's the successful outcome you're trying to achieve for those important customers, those ad agencies? Well, you're trying to get them to re- engage, sorry about using that word, um, engage with their audience better so that, they're, so that the brand that, they're associating your advertising message. If I see your ad on the Daily Mail, let's say, in the UK, which is a notorious, you know, right-wing newspaper, um, not far right or anything like that, but they, they, they have some interesting approaches to the refugee issues and, you know, they've, they've certainly voiced, you know, the, the economy ahead of health at the beginning of the, the, the pandemic. But they really are all about click, getting clicks, and that's fine, but if I see your brand on a on a on a on a site that's kind of conned me to click an interesting story, which is in actual fact, you know, just you know, it's 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 the the kind of story that you were talking about. It's badly written. Couldn't really say that about the, the the Daily Mail. They wouldn't. I don't think that they would do that. But you you get the drift. It's like if you if you're having a bad experience with a media outlet, and then you see an advert on that media outlet. 
you are in somehow associating with yourself. So I think if you're a media owner and you're not putting your audience first so that they grow, so that they are more engaged with your product, so that they're more loyal, so that they trust advertising that they find on your platform or on your media, your long-term growth is in danger. I, I, I do see, see at the moment that there's a lot of, there's even further growth in the amount of dissatisfaction with the way that the media is covering, especially around COVID. I, I personally think that this shouldn't have been covered by political journalists because political journalists are all about creating fights. Create division. <laughs> you know, they're basically, yeah, they, they want to create division because that's what sells newspapers. That's why we're in this global situation that we're in at the moment where extreme views, seem, you know, the echo chambers, the extreme views, it seems to it seems to all be part of the same problem. But that's really people just trying to, oh, let's, let's get clicks, let's get people outraged, let's sell fear. But we're, we're, we should have put the war correspondents in charge of the pandemic where they would have been a little bit more, you know, this is what's happening, these are the facts, these are the, I just don't think that we've had facts-based media coverage in a lot of a lot of media channels certainly here if you have a maybe a smaller newspaper or television local tv or something like that instead of plastering your entire website with garbage advertising that people only click on by accident that nobody wants to see that blares at them with pre-played audio video and stuff like this i I mean, honestly, I haven't tested it, so I can't guarantee it. But I, my theory is that if you partnered with the people you're advertising with, instead of just throwing AdSense crap on there, like sold affiliate stuff, sold something where you get a deal if if the advertiser makes their mark like maybe it's local winery and you say we'll run ads for you and and you know we get five percent of of the sales on your online store if we run the ads or you know whatever some kind of merit-based advertising i think they would make more money they probably make enough money that they would hire journalists to learn about these things so that they could have better stories that would attract more people and do the same thing that affiliate marketers do however they all say well if we did that and we had to run ads and we didn't run the ads we'd go broke but what they're actually saying is the ads that we are running don't make money for companies because if they did make money for companies they would jump on getting a percentage of revenue so what they should be doing is getting a percentage of the revenue. Yes, yeah, they should also be being listened to. I um, on there was a there was a really interesting. So I see a lot of I see parallels between customer experience and employee experience and stakeholder engagement. It's all the same thing. It's still human to human engagement. And there was an article yesterday in the Financial Times. They said that it had made a radical discovery. The quote that I had was: "Organizations will thrive." when all staff feel valued and their ideas are implemented. The article itself was saying, you know, there's a radical idea percolating through corporations because in the pandemic, leaders found that caring about people made productivity go up, not down. Now, to me, one, it it blows my mind that that is lost in business. I don't know anywhere in the world where somebody who's treated badly – or worse, will create more productivity. 
you know, I would imagine that even, you know, where there are the pockets of slavery still here, you know, which is, which is obviously abominable. But I would imagine that even if you had a slave, if you treated a slave badly compared to, uh, or, or you would get a different level of productivity out of them. How is it that we don't, I, and I see that there is, there's some business owners that don't realize that for their employers, employees. And they also don't realize it for their customers, because if customers are listened to and involved and their ideas weighed up and analyzed and implemented, well, you're going to have more engaged customers. Wow, this company's listening to me. It's moving with it. I mean, that's that in some mind, if you look at some of the most successful companies currently out there, like Apple, they are brilliant at changing with people's changing needs. You know, they have a they, their, their iPhone is such a malleable, flexible product that when I had it, when I was an employee, it was a completely different machine and it provided completely different va- value proposition to me than when I became a business owner. And I can now run my entire business if I need to from that small little little pocket. It's become much less of an entertainment product. But being able to, you know, they're always listening. I believe I believe Apple are one of those good I don't know if they're always listening. I mean, I could really use that headphone jack back. We've already said that. Well, they are always, they are, they are always listening at some level because we've already gone through that with the privacy. <laughs> yeah, they're always listening. You know, I want to get back to for one second. I was talking about the reading the room and the idea of of reading the culture before you send messages out to your clients. And one thing that I, because you kind of hit on it again, when kind of the whole... Black Lives Movement really came out in the United States again recently, and it became a very kind of a, a, a very front of front page news topic again in the United States. Every company wanted to send something out and say Black Lives Matter and, and whatever that they wanted to say. But the example that I used in the Inbox Mastery course is, is actually slightly different than that. But the one in my newsletter that I put was there's a, a clothing company. I'm not going to say who they are. Clothing company that I'm on their newsletter list. They generally sell to older white women is definitely their target market. And they sent out this story about how they believe in equity for all and, and all peoples and, and just kind of the whole thing. Like, I mean, they copy and paste it off somebody's Twitter feed um, on about black lives matter and put it in their email, sent it out. But you look at their company and like, there is no person of color or a woman anywhere underneath the management level, right? Like they pretty much have almost all men in the C-suite who are white men, except for, you know, they have a guy from India who's their CTO, right? I mean, it's just like, if they could be any less diverse, I mean, I don't even, can't even think of a company that's less diverse, (laughs) you know, except for maybe some oil companies or something. Like, I just don't believe them. And not only that, when they sent it out, it was so insincere. Like, you could just read how insincere and bullshit it was yeah, right yeah. and you know, i just would never buy anything from this company again right yeah ever yeah. i mean i immediately unsubscribed i'm sure thousands of other people did too and because they didn't read the room they they're not sincere about what they're saying it's obvious you can just go look them up and, and you know people are screenshotting their email and putting it on twitter and stuff and saying look at this bs they're putting out right it's just a pr nightmare and so the other example was, and there's huge wildfires right now on the West Coast in Washington, Oregon, and California, the United States, and, and a little bit of Idaho and stuff. Yeah, it looks horrific. People are getting 
like their homes are destroyed and their lives are destroyed and they're evacuating parts of cities. And, and I mean, there's still smoke outside so high that, you know, I can't have my kid go for a walk outside because the air index is so bad. And I got a fire sale email from a company. A fire sale. Talk about not being able to read the room, right? Dear me. You have to be able to read the culture, right? Before you're setting stuff out because it's part of the experience, right? And, you know, again, no one's ever going to buy from that company again. Well, you're, you're setting up, you're setting up, an, I mean, I'll, I'll take it back to that. You've set up an expectation. If you're putting it out there, but you can't have a jarring moment. If you're positioning your culture and your values to be a certain way, and by just looking at the board level, you can see that there is an authenticity gap, then you have created a negative um, customer experience. It's, it's damaging to the brand. It's, it's regardless of the ethics, you know, it's, people, are, people are entitled to opinions. But and there's a lot of social media. We talked about this on a podcast with a lovely guy from another another Canadian, actually, a guy called Jeremy Miller, who has got a company called Sticky Branding. And we talked very much about, you know, leaders weighing in to social media discussions, which I I think I've been prone to do. And we talked about it on the show. Hopefully I don't go too far. And I, I, I kind of take it back to. Is this certainly when I'm criticizing the media is, is this serving your customer? You know, that's what you've got to think, because if you're not serving your customer at the moment, then your customers can tell they're not being served. We're getting really good as prosumers, that Apple word, at picking out what's a marketing message, what's an authentic message. Because there were, going back to your example of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, there was some great ownership of of that or involvement of like we care there were some great brands like i personally think the the nike colin kaepernick is it, i hope i've said that wrong so we're not we're not big american football followers here in new zealand but you know the way that they it was it was and jeremy talks about this it was you know it was obviously a risky divisive move but what they're doing is they are living and breathing their values all the time you know, they there was what there was, and it was before the the Black Lives Matter stuff. But there was something going up, and I remember thinking, "Oh, Nike." You know, I kind of, unfortunately, from when I was a kid, I guess I associate with you a little bit with sweatshops, and you're you're currently on here talking about the downtrodden and oppressed. And so, what I did is I got on the internet because I'm a prosumer, and I started looking into the corporate and governance of Nike. And I was pleasantly surprised. They are leading the way in bringing sweatshops into the, the 21st century to get rid of that, to bring minimum wage to these, these countries. They are making a difference. So we're, we're going to, if you're going to put your values out there, then for goodness sake, make sure that you are living those values at every stage. I do think, and I, I know of leaders who couldn't give a shit about diversity, and yet they will be talking about diversity at every single team meeting. And then you look around the room and you're going, bro, <laughs> um, we, we've, we've, got, we've got a European, white European um, organisation. Look how much we, we live in um, the Pacifics. Uh, we've got more, we've got, we, this is the capital of the Pacifica people. When you look at, you know, the amount of people in Auckland, it's, uh, and, and, there's so many there's so many companies that proclaiming diversity and yet they're not they're not trying to help which is really what, what it's about right it's got to be you've got to you've got to walk the walk not talk not just talk the talk right 
We call them stale, male, and pale. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm feeling a bit like that at the moment. I have to say, um, we're coming to the end of winter here, so we're coming into spring. And uh, yeah, I'm feeling very. Well, we're just going into winter on our side of the planet here. Breton, let me, if somebody wants to talk to your company about customer experience, what is the best way for them to get a hold of you? I'm fairly active on LinkedIn, so please reach out to me there. Brenton Weber, Halftime Orange. Maybe you'll let me share the link in the in the show notes. We've we've actually got if if people want to just get a taste of what we do, then we've actually on our website, www.halftimeorange.co.nz, we have on the homepage an invitation um, to complete what we call the customer attention test. And we believe that if you're giving in the, in the in the same world, we love being with people that give us the right attention, and we've got ten quick questions that people can answer about their business. They're more than welcome to keep it anonymous because I actually think the the process of answering and thinking about these questions is, is value in itself. But if they would like a a a, a report creating from it, we break it down into how much you're involving your customer in your business, how much you're you're listening to your customer and how much you're doing with your customer. So we th- we're already seeing that there's there's some really powerful um, results by looking at how much attention your customers feel that they're getting from you, um, like there would be in any human to human relationship. So yeah, I'd invite anybody to fill that in, and yeah, if, if they want to report, they can follow the instructions as well, and we will we will be in touch very soon. Nice. Brenton Weber with Halftime Orange. I am Matt Rouse from the Digital Marketing Masters podcast. And you can also get our show notes at hookseo.com slash podcast. Everyone have a great day and listen to your customers. Great. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on. I've had I've loads of fun and I can't wait to to continue the conversation when we, we combine these two for, for that special event. That'd be great. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.